0: everybody. Welcome to another fantastic episode of Frightternity. I'm your little brother Danny and I'm here with my big brother Sean. How's everybody doing tonight? Danny,
1: I have to say that I am really excited about tonight's episode. Why are you excited
0: tonight, Sean?
1: Well, we may not be covering the greatest movie ever made, but this is our first sequel episode. You know, with Danny being relatively new to the horror genre, we tend to start with the first movie in any given franchise that we cover. I love doing this podcast and also getting to share these experiences with my little brother, but there's one thing about doing this that is bittersweet. It's the fact that we only get one opportunity to do whatever film it may be that we're covering that week. I've spent my life with these movies, I've watched more than a few of them, actually a whole lot of them, dozens of times over many, many years, but I only get one chance to share my thoughts, share these fond memories, and just share this experience one more time with you, Danny, and all of our listeners. I think that makes me and you strive to make the best of it due to being wholly aware of that fact. Luckily, there are plenty of franchises for us to cover. So, we may get to do a certain movie once, but we do get to revisit some of these characters and worlds more than a couple of times. And we're starting that trend today with 1989's The Stepfather 2. Not Halloween 2,
0: not Hellraiser 2, Stepfather (laughs) 2.
1: Yep, Stepfather 2. This is the sequel. To the stepfather, which we covered in our first Flip the Script episode. I had not seen the original, but I mentioned that I had seen this one before. But I also mentioned that I had no real memories of anything in this movie. And I'm not surprised after revisiting it. (laughs) (laughs) The one thing I did remember from the movie was Meg Foster in a blood-splattered wedding gown walking down the aisle of a church. And my memory definitely made this scene cooler than it actually is. I also mentioned how I thought that the first Stepfather was a bit of a happy accident. I felt like that movie was a failed attempt at a thriller that just so happened to work well enough as a slasher to succeed. Well, here we kind of get the opposite. We get a slasher that masquerades as a thriller. And I have to say that the results to me are a little less than favorable. I don't out and out hate this movie. It is directed by Jeff Burr. He's more than serviceable when making movies. He's done From a Whisper to a Scream, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3, Puppet Master 4 and 5, and Pumpkinhead 2. And I love all of those movies. And we also know, Danny, that you have a raging hard-on for everything Lost and that includes Terry O'Quinn. So let's dive right into the Stepfather 2 and see what kind
0: of mileage you get out of it. Absolutely. Can't wait to get into it. But before we start, just wanted to say you can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at Frighternity. DM us, like our tweets, retweet us, just go over there and say hi. We'd love to interact with you. We have an email, fraternity at gmail.com. That's fraternity at gmail.com. Send us questions, comments, anything at all. We'll get back to you. We have a YouTube channel. Go over to YouTube, type in Frighternity in the search bar and our channel will come up where we upload previous episodes of the show every Wednesday. Every Wednesday, those episodes go up over there and they have a bit of a visual treat. So if you're a fan of the show and you're going through the episodes again, go over on YouTube, give us some views because there's some surprises over there that you'll just have to go and check out. So go over there, give us some likes and subscribe and give us some ratings on the platform of choice that you choose to listen to Fraternity on, because it really helps us. We want to grow and expand our reach into the horror community. We want to be the number one horror podcast on the internet, and we need your help to do it. So thank you to all the listeners out there. Keep doing what you're doing, and keep up to date with everything Fraternity is doing on all social media. So
1: the movie starts with a short audio and visual recap of the violent conclusion to the first stepfather before we see Jerry Blake wake up from this nightmare. He's in an asylum, and we watch him fondle the scars on his chest before he analyzes a miniature of an idyllic street in the suburbs. If there's one thing this movie does great, it's matching the tone of the original. It definitely feels like a continuation.
0: Yeah, in some parts they definitely nail the tone and certain aspects of the character of the titular stepfather. They definitely get some stuff right.
1: Yeah, but if there's something off about the movie, it's the pacing. Because having to start off in the asylum and catch everyone back up on what happened definitely eats up some running time. It's not terrible stuff, but it causes our new
0: chapter to get rushed a bit. I find the asylum scenes to be pretty much a drag all the way through. Because we know what's coming. We know the stepfather, is going to trick whoever he needs to trick to escape. And it's not really exciting. It's nothing extraordinary happens. It's just a little boring. And I think that's the perfect word for this entire film is it's very boring. (laughs) Yikes. Even in 1989, I think
1: we knew who was going to see the stepfather too. So... I don't think it's completely necessary to re-examine all of this. But yeah, Jerry Blake spends a lot of time talking to a new therapist who clearly wants to give him the benefit of the doubt and help him out. This therapist is trying to gain the trust of Jerry. And Jerry plays along, but like you said, we know he's got ulterior motives. By God, Danny, there's a woman out there who needs a new husband and a child in desperate need of a new father. And Jerry Blake's going to bring it to him.
0: <laughs> there are kids out there just waiting to be called Slugger.
1: <laughs> so we see therapy sessions taking place between the recreational time Jerry spends in the wood shop making tiny houses and models of people. No birdhouses, oddly. I guess what's the point, right? But one day Jerry brings one of these houses along with a figure to the therapist's office and he tells him that it'll provide the answer to his question of why would a man kill one family and move along and start with a brand new one? We see Jerry smash this model causing the therapist to hit his panic button but he quickly calms the situation down and explains by saying the eternal optimist believes he can fix whatever is broken. As he rebuilds this model house. So the doctor tells the guard to leave them be. And he starts to take notes. But we see Jerry pick the figure up off of the floor. And he pulls a hidden blade from inside of it. And he rams this blade into the back of the neck of the therapist. And as this therapist dies, Jerry hits the panic button. And sneak attacks the guard who comes in. He takes that guard's billy club and just beats him to death with it. There was a strange bit where we saw Jerry in bed at night pulling his own hair out and collecting it, and we see as Jerry escapes the asylum, he's still as clever as ever as he's wearing the guard's uniform, and he now has that mustache that he's crafted out of his own hair, and so begins the stepfather too.
0: How did he get it to
1: stick on his face? Craft glue, I (laughs) assume? Well... There's another answer there, but I'm not going to go there. (laughs) We then get this nice Henry esque random act of violence as Jerry approaches a man fighting to get some luggage in his trunk. And Jerry offers (laughs) to help this guy out. And before he knows it, Jerry slams this guy's arms in the trunk. And I guess that killed him, huh? (laughs) So Jerry takes the car, takes the guy's possessions, finds a hotel, and he starts crafting his new appearance. He's got hair on the top of his head once again. And he even changes the color of his eyes with contact lenses. We watch as he sits in the hotel room, watching a news bulletin about his murderous escape. But he changes the channel to this game show called Dream House. And this game show shows off a place called Meadow Estates. It's this idyllic American dream-filled suburb. And that is where Jerry Blake is heading, because that is the American dream. For our stepfather. He ends up assuming the identity of a recently deceased publisher named Gene Clifford. And the next time we see him, he's being shown a house in Palm Meadows by the recently divorced realtor Carol Grayland, who just so happens to live across the street, Danny, with her young son Todd.
0: Prime suspect for the stepfather to creep in on and get on in this family. Now Todd is played by Jonathan Brandis
1: and he tragically ended his own life at a young age many years ago. But if you're my age, then he was undeniably present in your childhood at some point, whether it was sidekicks, ladybugs, or the never-ending story too. He was a really wonderful young actor. His contributions to horror are limited, but almost everyone surely remembers him as the young Bill Denborough in the TV version of It, and we also get him here in The Stepfather 2 as our next child in peril. I am a bit surprised that they went with a boy, but Jonathan Brandis was more than capable, and he's one of the reasons that I can't simply hate this movie.
0: Yeah, he does a good job, and I, too, was a little shocked that they went with a boy and not a teenage girl this time. I guess my only complaint is that I feel like Todd doesn't have a whole lot to do in the film, I wish he had more to do, but when he's on screen, he's pretty great. He's in some of the better scenes in the film, in my opinion.
1: Yeah, I agree with that statement. Definitely. So, Jerry moves into this house, and before the night ends, we watch Jerry as he watches this home dating service videotape. And the women on this tape are just Jerry's worst
0: nightmares. (laughs) (laughs) Career women. Next. I love the woman just staring blankly in the space. It's like, how did she even get there? Even Jerry's confused.
1: Yeah, he thinks, like, maybe the tape paused. <laughs> <laughs> the only redeeming quality in this scene is the look of utter disgust on Terry Quinn's face as he skips through these videos.
0: I feel like I'm laughing at the scene and not with the scene. Like, I feel like I'm not getting the intended joke, but the scene is just so goofy. Like, I can't even picture Jerry even bothering with a video like this, you know?
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's goofy on a lot of levels. (laughs) So Jerry, or Gene as he goes by now, has the new home and a new target in sight. So whatever shall we do next? Why, we're going to have a great big group therapy session with all of the women that live on the block, of course. So Gene passes himself off as a family therapist, and credentials be damned, every bored housewife and recent divorcee is going to attend. He didn't even offer them finger sandwiches, Danny, and they showed up anyway.
0: I don't understand why these are group therapy sessions and what exactly (laughs) the women are getting out of it. Uh, Just one of those things where it just does not make a lick of sense in the film. And plus, I don't buy Jerry as a therapist or a psychiatrist. Like, in the first film, he's something of a salesman, and that totally fits in line with his character, because I feel like being unhinged just comes with the territory of being a salesman and all that work entails. But here, it just... I don't know. I don't find it believable. I don't think it services his character at all. I mean, all he really says is, oh, I'm about the family. I think all the problems begin and end with the family. But it just doesn't make sense. And it's not fun. I find these therapy sessions to be some of the worst scenes in the film, especially this first one with that awkward humming joke scene, whatever the fuck.
1: (laughs) Yeah, unfortunately, I knew exactly what this woman was talking about when she explains her husband's obsession with her humming show tunes. Not that I (laughs) or anyone should want that image in their head, but you do kind of have to love Jerry's conservative traditionalist naivety here. I thought that was funny where he's like, do you have any idea why he'd want you to do that?
0: (laughs) Yeah, the saving grace is Terry O'Quinn's great acting. I mean, just his reactions as Jerry, just completely taken aback by what he's hearing. This debauchery.
1: (laughs) Yeah, he even jots down some notes. One can only imagine what he wrote down. (laughs) (laughs) We also learn more about Carol's marriage troubles, and we meet her best friend Maddie, played by the always lovely Caroline Williams. So Jerry's doing his research on Carol here, and he learns that she's holding up decent enough ever since her dentist husband ran off with his secretary. But her son Todd, much like Stephanie in the first film, has been taking the change kind of hard. But we know how good our stepfather-to-be can be with children, and we watch as his relationship with Carol and Todd blossoms over these next few
0: scenes. I love that part when uh, Jerry's taking a bag of groceries out of his car. And it just breaks on him. (laughs) I don't know why, but that part makes me giggle every time. And then Carol comes over and helps him out. And we see that Jerry just only buys frozen food because he doesn't know how to cook. Classic American dad.
1: (laughs) Were those the most 80s looking TV dinners or what? (laughs) (laughs) They didn't even look real. They look like, you know, when kids buy like fake grocery toys. That's what they look like. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs)
0: like those hollow boxes
1: (laughs) (laughs) so at the next group therapy session we see that carol isn't there and we learn that maddie is a male woman and she as well as we can pick up on the fact that jerry is kind of distracted here and he notices carol's ex-husband phil arrive at carol's house through his window so he cuts the session short and he goes over there to carol's to do some recon He meets Phil and leaves to go have one of those old familiar stepfather freakout sessions in the garage, Danny. I mean, he's just kind of cutting wood, ain't he? Well, that's what he does, Danny. He cuts the wood. (laughs) (laughs) At the same time, Maddie comes back over because she left her work hat in his house. And she finds the door unlocked, so she walks in. And she attempts to take a peek at Jerry's notebook, and oh how I wish we got a Patrick Bateman's secretary discovers his notebook moment here, but I digress.
0: <laughs> it's like they want to set up Maddie as being like on the trail of Gene and finding out the real truth, but it's really never enough to go anywhere until the end when it's more or less just handed to her, you know. Eh, it's Again, a little boring.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and that's why Todd didn't get anything to do, because Maddie, the friend, gets the Stephanie role in this one, you know, where she's the suspicious
0: one. She's almost like a combination of Stephanie and Jim Ogilvie from the original.
1: We don't talk about Jim Ogilvie here, Danny. (laughs) Hey, if there's one thing I'll say about The Stepfather 2 is there's no B-plot. Thank God. The A-plot's bad (laughs) enough. (laughs) So Jerry quickly catches Maddie. He manages to give her the genuine creeps as he stares her down and sees her out of the house. But back to the situation with Phil and Carol, this really throws a wrench in Jerry's plans. Because we see Carol confiding in Jerry about the situation the next day. And he convinces her to let him have a chat with Phil before making any decisions just to make sure that things are really on the up and up with Phil. And when Phil arrives later that night, things get off to a tense start, as Jerry tells him that Carol couldn't bring herself to tell him, but she wants no part of him. But when Phil goes to leave, wanting to hear this from her own mouth, Jerry stops him and tells him, it was a test to make sure you were for real. (laughs) I do like how he always gets himself into shit in this one. You know, like with this moment, and there's a moment later with Maddie where he's lied himself into a bad situation. He's like, fuck.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's almost like he just wanted Phil to go away. And when he realizes that isn't going to happen, it's like the murderous stepfather turns on and he's like, wait, come back. Let me kill you real quick.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Before we get to the killing, we cut to a brief scene of Carol hanging out at Maddie's place. And they're sharing some wine that Maddie got from her parents as a gift. And she tells Carol of her newfound feelings towards Jerry being a weirdo. She has suspicions on his vagueness and talks about how they're spilling their guts to a complete stranger. But the only important thing in this scene is the four bottles of wine that Maddie has in her house. So that's the only reason this scene is really here. We then cut back to Jerry's house where he pours a drink for Phil. And then he picks up another bottle and mentions how it's about time he cracked it open before smashing it across the back of Phil's head. And Phil falls to the floor and Jerry viciously stabs him to death with the broken bottle. You know, for such a cheap movie, this scene has a nice Argento feel to it. We get some (laughs) heavy blues before Phil's blood splatters on an overturned lamp bulb and bathes
0: the room in red light. Yeah, it's great. I mean, Jerry gets a nice one liner where he says, I think it's time I crack open this bottle and then he whacks it over Phil's head. I love the lighting turning red and then the light bulb popping as that kill is finished. It's good stuff.
1: Yeah. And then Jerry is processing this situation and Carol calls and asks how things are going. And if he could have Phil call her when he gets back to his hotel. And I like how he kindly relays this message to Phil's corpse, like, she wants you to call her when you get back in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: another good one-liner to top
1: off the scene. Yeah, but now we're moving into corpse disposal mode, and we get this sequence where Jerry drives to the hotel, he gathers all of Phil's belongings, and it's all good stepfathery stuff going on here. But then we get this off-the-wall bit where Jerry drives Phil's car, with Phil and his belongings in the trunk, to a junkyard, and then he just drives around like a madman to smash this car to pieces and leave it there among all the other junk cars. This seems like a noisy and reckless endeavor here, if you ask me. I'm not sure this would even ever work.
0: Yeah. I'm not saying Jerry is a criminal mastermind, but he seems a bit convoluted, if you ask me. I'm not convinced he would just leave the body there in the trunk uh, when when someone could easily just be like, hey, this car wasn't here yesterday.
1: (laughs) Right. And I'm pretty sure whoever works at this junkyard would notice a new car sitting there the next day,
0: right? I mean... I get that they probably didn't want to do another car explosion like with Stephanie's therapist in the, ori- in the original, and that's fine. And maybe they didn't even have the budget for an explosion like that. I'm more willing to believe that truth. But this one just very off the wall. And then we see Jerry like having a little bit of a joy ride, too. <laughs> right. It's like, uh, OK,
1: <laughs> I like how the car dies faster than he expects it to. And he's like, should have bought American, Phil. it is what it is we'll go
0: with it and yeah it's it's not horrible it's uh it's just so odd you know yeah (laughs) compared to the first one it's very off the wall
1: and then jerry gets his steps in as he walks home yet again whistling (laughs) but before he gets inside his house he runs into todd who is curious about what happened between him and his father and jerry takes him in to make a Big ol' bygum sandwich. (laughs) 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 And while making the sandwich for Todd, Todd bonds with him as Jerry teaches him how to whistle the song that he heard him whistling outside. And the next day, we see that Maddie's suspicions continue to grow as she notices that Jerry only ever receives junk mail. We then watch Jerry tell his fabricated tale to Carol as we see Phil's car get put in the crusher and destroyed. We should have got some gore in that
0: scene. I know, dude. Like, come on. I wanted some blood erupting out of that trunk. Just a little bit. Just to sell it, you know? It didn't have to yeah. be much. Right. Just, put, just buy... All you had to do was buy a jug from the party store and just throw it in the back of the truck and crush the car. Yeah. I'm sure something would have happened.
1: I'm not saying <laughs> have a hand stuck out the trunk. Just a little blood, you know? <laughs>
0: just a little bit leaking it would have been fine it would have been great but it just it's like i don't believe a guy is in that trunk i'm sorry (laughs) right
1: we then see jerry profess his fondness and adoration for carol and the path to stepfatherdom is restored here danny things are moving fast now too uh you know i mentioned earlier that the asylum introduction really cut into the sequel story's runtime So it's here at a backyard barbecue that Carol and Jerry announce their engagement. And this goes over with everyone except Maddie, who only has her best friend's safety in mind, but Carol's a damaged woman and doesn't need to hear this at the moment. Later on, we see Jerry and Carol embracing, and Jerry backs away, exclaiming his approaching need for a cold shower. (laughs) And at the same time, Carol isn't bothered and is ready for some action, but... The traditionalist Jerry informs her that he wants to do this right, Danny. It's his first marriage. (laughs) (laughs) And Carol can't help but be a little put off by this. Worse yet, though, just as things are looking up for the stepdaddy to be, Maddie finally gets that break and she finds a class reunion letter addressed to Gene F. Clifford. And it's clear that he has lied about his identity. She calls Jerry and has him meet her in a public place where she confronts him about this. And Jerry attempts to lie his way out of this situation. But unfortunately for Jerry, Gene F. Clifford was African-American. You know, he tries to tell her people can change a lot in 30 years, but not that much, Jerry.
0: Not that much. (laughs) As she shows... The picture of the all-black basketball team.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I can't seem to find you in this photograph. Well, I've changed. (laughs) So caught in his lies, he tells Maddie that he wants the opportunity to tell Carol himself. So Maddie agrees to give him until five. So obviously Maddie is not long for this world at this point. (laughs) But before Jerry slays Maddie... Jerry decides to go rail Carol. <laughs> and in the bedroom, she discovers all of his scars, and he tells her that one of his patients heard voices that told them to do that to him. So the scars kind of cover for his prudishness, and we get our requisite
0: sex scene in The Stepfather 2. You know, it's kind of nice here to see the lengths of manipulation that Jerry goes to to secure his soon to be wife's love with Carol. You know, she's just so infatuated by him, it's like, at this point, he can almost do no wrong, you know, especially when Maddie was trying to warn Carol about him, and she just wasn't listening at all. So, it is nice in this film. I'll give it credit where credit is due, as we do see the blossoming relationship and how one can become infatuated with a man like Jerry Blake.
1: Yeah, especially this scar reveal scene. like. It was touching. it wasn't like
0: pay it forward touching, but it was touching
1: for this movie,
0: yeah, it definitely hits those notes, and there's a couple scenes in this film where it's like, you know this is touching, and Jerry does make a good point, but he we also know as the audience that he is a murderer, so <laughs> we know he's kind of full of shit, but yeah, that's the great dichotomy with the stepfather character,
1: yeah, and all this time maddie is impatiently waiting and she's attempting to call carol but carol's at jerry's house in a fuck coma (laughs) and with carol's (laughs) oh shit and with carol asleep jerry makes his way to maddie's and it isn't long before she's hearing noises around the house She arms herself and searches around before she gets startled by a cat in the trash. She lets the cat out of the house when Jerry suddenly sneaks up on her and strangles her to death. I thought this was a decent strangulation. I thought Caroline Williams really sold it.
0: Yeah, she sells it really well. Especially Jerry's like, you know, if you quit fighting, it'll be a lot easier.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Nice touch with the tongue squeezing out of the mouth. Good stuff.
0: Yeah, definitely. But it's just unfortunate that Maddie more or less ran out of things to do in the film and just had to be killed off, you know?
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Good point. So with Maddie dead, Jerry finds that class reunion letter, but then he hangs Maddie in the kitchen and types out a suicide note. I thought the stepfather staged a good suicide scene here, but he also makes two pretty foolish mistakes. First, he takes one of Maddie's bottles of wine home with him and wakes Carol up to share a glass. And secondly, as he makes that walk home, he whistles his favorite tune as he cuts through the yard of Maddie's blind neighbor who just so happens to
0: hear him. I'm a little annoyed that the ominous whistling that was more or less a one off thing in the original film becomes such a major plot point in the second film. And is basically instrumental to making Jerry's whole charade crumble in front of him. It just, I don't know, it just doesn't strike me as the most creative thing you could do with the character.
1: (laughs) Hard to argue. Look, we're dealing with a 40 minute plot here in reality. (laughs) You know, like. Right. They couldn't do too much here. They were like, oh, he whistles. Yeah, well, that's how we'll nail his ass. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, it's like it's like they took every little thing that he did and, like, tried to expand on it. And it's like, we don't learn anything new about the stepfather character. It's just, hey, remember that? He whistles. Now it's, like, going to be involved in the plot. And it's like, oh, really? <laughs> like, the stepfather gets caught by whine and whistling. I mean, I guess. Like I already said, it is
1: what it is. We're going to go with it, you know? (laughs) Believe it or not, we're almost to the end of the movie. We're almost there. But first, Carol and Jerry attend Maddie's funeral. And then they go to Maddie's house afterward. And we watch Jerry do his best to console Carol. But they wind up getting interrupted by this blind man named Sam. And he tells them how he heard someone leave Maddie's house whistling. He assumes it was one of her boyfriends. And he then whistles the song for Carol and Jerry to hear. But despite all of this, Jerry manages to talk Carol out of going to the police or postponing their marriage. And so we're off to our wedding day climax of The Stepfather 2. We see friends and family filing into the church as the choir and organist prepare. Todd checks out the banquet hall and takes a lick of that delicious icing on the wedding cake. He's also carrying a case of wine to his mother as she gets dressed. And the case of wine is a gift from Maddie's parents, and it's the same wine that Jerry took from Maddie's house. Carol hasn't quite put two and two together just yet, but it's coming. (laughs) It isn't until she hears Todd whistling the tune in the hall that she realizes, What might have been going on behind her back this entire time? She asks Todd where he learned that song, and he tells her that Jerry taught it to him. And Jerry enters, and Carol asks Todd to give them some privacy. And Carol straight snaps on Jerry here, carving through the bullshit like that soon-to-be-wasted wedding cake. And Jerry was so close, Danny. He was so close, and he just snaps here. He's done so much to try and make this work. He even had sex with her, Danny. (laughs) Like, I like when he uses that against her. I even had sex with you. I even had sex with you, for God's sake. (laughs) (laughs) So he bloodies Carol's nose up and he's, he's trying to choke her with her veil. And Todd hears the commotion and he enters the room. And when he sees what's going on, he runs for it. And Jerry gives chase and winds up locking Todd in a storage closet. All the while, the family and friends in the church just remain blissfully unaware. Then we see a bloodied Carol search for Todd before she gets tackled by Jerry in the banquet hall. The two of them crash over the table of gifts and struggle with one another, and Carol gets to upper hand, literally, when she stabs a meat fork through Jerry's hand.
0: (laughs) Oh, they sell it pretty well. You definitely feel that that one hurt.
1: (laughs) I love you know meat forks are surprisingly rare in horror believe it or not I can only think of one kill where there was a meat fork kill in blood rage but I can't think of anything else besides this where someone's even stabbed with one anybody out there is gonna have to let us know what meat fork ingenuity
0: in horror that we're missing out on that's surprising I feel like it would be more of a common weapon
1: Yeah, I agree. That's why it is very surprising. So Jerry throws Carol to the ground. He pulls those prongs from his flesh, and then he delivers this table-smashing backhand to Carol. And at the same time, we see that Todd is using a hammer to knock the door hinge bolts loose and escape the closet. And like we mentioned earlier, one of the, I guess you could call it interesting things in this one, is that Maddie did get the Stephanie role here. So Carol and Todd were never suspicious of Jerry. So this turn of events is a complete blind slide for both of them, you know?
0: Yeah, it more or less comes out of nowhere. I mean, she was basically about to get married in five minutes, and then this fight happened instead.
1: Yeah, I do think it is a bit detrimental to the overall movie because to me it makes this last bit feel a little bit rushed. And again, this movie's biggest issue is pacing, because like I said, we basically have a 40-minute story with two very distinct bookends, the asylum and then this wedding finale. It's not all bad, but it's problematic, structurally speaking.
0: Yeah, the ending here almost feels like the movie is just about to get going, and then it's just over. So yeah, it's definitely lacking... More meat on the bones. I also read
1: that the producers wanted to gore this movie up more, but Terry O'Quinn refused to do any reshoots, so they wound up doing insert shots. Neither of these films are that bloody, and if what I saw on screen was the insert shots, then I guess there must have been no blood in this original cut. We are about to get some good bloodletting here, though. Because Carol manages to stab Jerry through the shoulder. And Terry O'Quinn does have some great reactions to getting hurt. (laughs) He grabs her and pushes her across the room. And they wind up knocking over the wedding cake. And we get this pretty decent artsy shot of the bride and groom falling off of the cake. Toppling towards the floor. And they smash into pieces right as Jerry throws Carol through some doors. Jerry tells Carol that he just wanted to take care of her before he pulls the knife out of his shoulder and stalks towards her. But before he can get to her, Todd arrives and smashes Jerry's knife-wielding hand with the hammer, and we see Jerry fall to his knees, and he asks Todd, You wouldn't hit me again, would you, Slugger? (laughs) Well, he would, Jerry. He would. Because Todd smashes the claw end of this hammer right into Jerry's chest. And yet again, the ever-loving stepfather gets it right in the heart, Danny.
0: The perfect place to get hit for a man like Jerry.
1: Jerry collapses to the floor as we see Todd help his mother to her feet. The two of them enter the church as the organist begins to play Here Comes the Bride. The choir members scream out in horror at the sight of this blood-splattered bride. And Todd and Carol manage to get to the front of the church before Carol collapses. And at the same time, we see Jerry has got back to his feet, but he too collapses, and he winds up finding the head of the shattered bride, and he looks at it, uttering, till death, before going limp, and supposedly dying, once again. And that's the end of our movie.
0: Oh, it's finally over. <laughs> <laughs> the stepfather too, Danny. Let's hear it. Well... The Stepfather 2, it's got good performances. I mean, you put Terry O'Quinn in a film or a TV show, and he's going to give a great performance. But it's also got Meg Foster, who I think is probably delivering the best performance out of the main cast. You've got Caroline Williams, who does a great job as Maddie. This plot is all over the place, and it never really picks up for me. Until the very end with this church blood splattering scene. But it just isn't enough. And nothing in the film is enough to make me care. Not even the performances. Not even the return of the titular stepfather. Even as much as I love the original film, I just can't seem to care much about this one. There's some decent kills, some decent gore here and there. One or two artistic shots in the film that are worth seeing. But overall, I just find this to be a bit of a slog and just hard to get through. And it pains me to say that because I don't like shitting on films. I try to see the positive in all of it. And there are de- some definite positives. But if you're a fan of the first film, I really can't say if you're going to like this one or not because for me, I definitely was not a fan. But who knows? Maybe you'll like it. So check it out. Stepfather 2.
1: Well said. And it's hard to argue. (laughs) It is a slog, (laughs) but it's a horror slog. So
0: take it or leave it. (laughs) A horror slog is a better slog than any.
1: (laughs) Definitely. Well, you can't say that the Stepfather 2 didn't up the body count. That's one thing I'll give it. Yeah unfortunately it still doesn't give us too much to choose from but did you find a
0: favorite kill Danny? I have a feeling we're gonna pick the same kill but my favorite kill of the film is Phil getting it with that broken bottle. You got it right that's mine too. (laughs) (laughs) I just love how spontaneous and unhinged this kill feels especially Jerry he Almost doesn't seem like he really thought it out too well. He's just operating on instinct. And we get that great one-liner about time to crack open this bottle. And then he thwacks it over Phil. And Phil's just like utterly confused. Like, no, please don't. And then I love a good uh, stabbing with a broken bottle. That's always great. And yeah, you do get that wonderful red lighting in the room and then the popping of the light bulb and then you get another great one-liner after carol asks jerry to relay the message to phil (laughs) and then jerry talks to phil's dead body so it's funny it's got some decent gore it's got decent shots so i think it's the most well-crafted kill in the film and Apparently it's yours too, Sean. So why don't you give me your opinion?
1: Well, yeah, like I said, I just really like the low rent Argento vibes that this scene gives off. <laughs> and I'm sure that there are Argento fans that are going to scoff at the thought of comparing anything in this movie to any of his work. But I'm doing it. <laughs> I don't care. At me. Let me hear what you got. Adam. Don't at me, at him. <laughs> <laughs> we also do get Some great psychobabble from Jerry here. It almost reminds (laughs) me of when Norman kills Duke in Psycho 3. Like, I really like when someone murders a person while espousing their values. (laughs) Like, what the? You're killing somebody, (laughs) though. It's a great kill and definitely a highlight of this movie, which is almost a series of lowlights besides this.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's... It's kind of perfectly in the middle, so just as I was about to doze off, this happens, and I'm like, oh, okay, well, I'm up again.
1: (laughs) Well, I have a feeling that we may choose the same scene
0: also, so why don't you let me hear what your favorite scene is? Oh, I think you're right, but (laughs) I actually have an honorable mention. Okay, awesome. We didn't even bring it up, but my honorable mention is when... Jerry pours his Rice Krispies and puts his ear up to the bowl (laughs) to hear him snap, crackle, and pop.
1: I almost forgot that scene was in there. (laughs) That was pretty funny.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I laughed out loud when that scene came on. I was just like, why is this here? Like, this is so goofy. I love it.
1: He's got this look of childish wonder when he puts his (laughs) ear to the bowl.
0: (laughs) Right? Yeah, this movie just has a handful of so outlandish scenes that they just come around the world to being laugh out loud hilarious especially with the character of Jerry Blake so yeah I love it we didn't bring it up but I just had to say it I really do think it's hilarious and again I love when he drops his groceries like <laughs> <laughs> every time it happens I-, I just think of the scored bag that he was holding you know like you can tell when he lifts it like it's gonna rip <laughs>
1: Was he going to cut a bag of groceries every day until she saw him do that? (laughs) And of course, he had some canned goods and that can just rolls like way the fuck off. (laughs) Yeah, I think Todd ollied over it. (laughs) Awesome, man. Great honorable mentions. Thanks for reminding me of the Rice Krispies (laughs) scene. Good stuff.
0: Well, come on. You know what we're going to pick. It's the finale. Am I right? There's no surprises (laughs) here, yes. It's,
1: like, I'll start us off. Like, sure, it has its problems. Sure, it feels terribly rushed. But as a horror fan, watching a movie called The Stepfather 2, sometimes you just have to be honest and admit why you're here. (laughs) And this is why you're here. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> if these two stepfather films get anything right, it's definitely the violent finales. And if you were a young horror fan like me in the late 80s and early 90s, and you rented The Stepfather 2, or you saw it on television, it gave you a few cool things. And I'm talking a few. And the best of which is definitely this finale. It's not as memorable as I remember, But at the same time, I did have vague memories of this, so it clearly did something just right enough to barely cling on to my memory bank. (laughs) But yeah, look, if you're a horror fan watching The Stepfather 2, this is why you're here. And there's nothing wrong with that.
0: Yeah, absolutely not. Yeah, it's so funny, like, clearly there was something that stuck with you, but upon your rewatch, you're like, man... This is what stuck with me. (laughs) Yeah, really.
1: I couldn't help but think, I was like, man, this is not as cool as my memory.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Some films are just like that. Some, you just, you're better off living with that memory than trying to relive the moment. (laughs) Definitely. But yeah, it's got, you know, Jerry taking that knife to the shoulder and just getting up like nothing, still walking. I love when they crash into all those presents. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You've got the steak knife through the hand. You've got that decently artistic shot with the cake topper fastly approaching the ground as Jerry and Carol are wrestling with each other. And then it finally shatters as Jerry throws Carol through the door. And to finish it all off, we get two nice hits with a hammer. So it's pretty decent. And I think the church, you know what it is. I think the church as a set piece is what makes it memorable. Just this whole wedding day church setting is definitely unique and it has something going for it. It doesn't hit the whole nine yards, but hey, it gets halfway there.
1: Yeah, a church on a wedding day is kind of where a stepfather film should conclude But at the same time, this movie's kind of bullshit. He was never a stepfather in it.
0: (laughs) Yeah, what the hell, Jerry? You led me on. All right. Well, that was Stepfather 2. Well, fuck that. Here's my pitch for the trilogy ender. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) So we're retconning Stepfather 3. Get that shit out of the way. We bring Terry O'Quinn back, and he's now an old man. He has a family. He finally succeeded. And he has a granddaughter who's very tech savvy. You know, she's on TikTok, you know, whatever. She's got a social media presence and he doesn't like this. So they definitely butt heads and they clash. And then she starts to investigate and hear about these old murders that happened. Jerry Blake and Gene. And then, you know, stuff comes ahead. The old Jerry starts to come out. Come on, you know, this is going to be good. Terry O'Quinn, if you're listening. Come on, sign on. I'll write it. I'll be the writer. And we're going to call it The Grandfather. Ooh. How's that for an ending to the Stepfather series? Come on. You know that's good. Green light it.
1: <laughs> it's not a family if you use your phone at the table, honey. <laughs> well, until then, until we get The Grandfather off the ground, you can catch us right here next week and every week after that. And trust us when we tell you we will not be doing Stepfather 3 next week.
0: (laughs) Or anytime soon, I hope. Definitely not. Thank you for listening, everyone. Have a great night.